Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode, delighted to be joined by the singer, musician, campaigner, activist, Rhoda Dakar. Heck yes, we have the two-tone legend on the show this week. We talk about that band, The Body Snatchers. Our Paul Weller connections kick off with the jam and take us through to Red Wedge, where Rhoda became chair of the steering group whilst making guest appearances alongside the likes of Mr. Weller, Billy Bragg, Dr. Robert, Junior Giscom, The Communards, and more. Rhoda talks about her friendship with Paul, watching him come back as a solo artist and ultimately enjoy some of the biggest highs of his long career. We talk recording at Black Barn Studio, Paul Weller HQ, and we'll even hear another angle on the famous Mick Talbot gets left at a motorway service station story. Without further ado, let's get into it. Rhoda Dakar, thanks for joining me. You're very welcome. Hey, look, this is a real honor to have you on the podcast. I'm looking forward to digging into some of these stories and your connections with Paul and no stories. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna, this is going to be a very short podcast then. Yeah. <laughs> There's Boy, nothing maybe. I can tell you, Dan. <laughs> I read a post on Facebook from you the other day, which said that you were now in your sixth decade of performing yeah. in public, starting yeah. in the 60s, age nine. Yeah. That's mad. Yeah, I know. I know it's mad, but it is true, of course, though. Yeah, it's bonkers because people sort of say, oh, you've been doing this long. It's like, well, yeah, really long time. What was it about the bug? What got you hooked on that performing thing? I think I'd wanted to do it. I'd always wanted to do it. There are photographs of me age three playing my piano. I couldn't play, but, you know, I had a little toy piano, which was kind of baby size and I was sat at my piano smiling and singing <laughs> and whatever so I was, I've been doing it for years and my dad was a, an actor and a singer as well so it's kind of in the family and I didn't start performing until I was nine because that's when my mum finally gave in and let me because so it would have been before that given the chance Obviously this is the Paul Weller fan podcast so we're going to dig into some of the connections with Paul over the years. When was it you first became aware of Paul Weller? I have a feeling 
there was a connection with a friend of yours, Jill. Would that be right? Yeah, because um, Jill was following a band called The Jam, and there was like this whole group of us, big group of friends who'd all met as Bowie fans. We'd all been Bowie fans together since about 73. But Jill lived in Bromley. I mean, we lived kind of all over the place, Brighton, Essex. I was South London. Then there were some people from like, sort of up in the boonies of Essex. And then there was Jill from Bromley. She knew Sue and Steve Severin and Tracy. So she was kind of our lead into punk because she was mates with all those people. So she kind of got us going to this club called Louise's in Poland Street because she had a mate, Pauline, and... Pauline was the only girl who was allowed to go and see the jam, everyone else. My mate Tony was allowed to go, so he used to go, and Pauline. And I know that definitely when we played with From the Jam a few years back, I said to Bruce, Tony says hi, let me show you a picture of Tony, see if you remember him. And I showed him a picture, went, oh yeah, I do remember him. I said, remember he was mates with Jill? And I said, because this is what Jill looked like, you know, when I knew. And he was like, oh my God, you know, so yeah, so she was obviously there. She was obviously omnipresent and so was Tony, but we were all banned from going to see the jam. Was this Jill Price or this is a different Jill? Yeah. This is Jill Price. This is Okay, so Jill became a big part of the Weller crew at one point, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. But I I do remember it was kind of funny. So I never saw the jam because it was just too much ag. And I went to see them as John's boys at the marquee. And I remember I was chatting and I remember, (laughs) it was quite funny actually, her face. Oh my God. Oh, so what are you doing here? I mean, it was literally like that. You know what I mean? And I just thought, hang on a minute, I was banned for years. And technically, this isn't the jam, so I am allowed to come. But anyway, I'll just uh, never mind. Leave. I assumed it was your parents banning you from the jam, but no, it was, it was Jill, was it? <laughs> yeah, it was Jill. No, all the all the girls in the group were banned. Those were the rules. Only Pauline, her mate Pauline, could go. Did she say why you weren't allowed? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, use your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> I'm allowed to come just in case. Okay, I get you. Uh, Doesn't want the competition. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, yes. That was the that was the premise. Yeah, no competition. Oh, that's funny, blimey. And uh, <laughs> and obviously later then you get into the music industry and we should talk yeah. about Body Snatchers. So this is 1979. Girl bands at that point were really, really rare, weren't they? And this was um, an all-female two-tone band. So tell me about that and how that came about and how you became part of that. Initially, I was a bride of the theatre and I wanted to be an actress. And my first job out of school was at the Young Vic, worked in the wardrobe department because I could sew. And whilst I was there, there was like one black actor and he was literally parachuted in just to play in one play and then he was gone again and I just thought "Mm, nurses and prostitutes that's going to be all I do because well I mean it seemed patently obvious there was if you looked at television there was there were just no roles for women there were roles there were some roles for black men you know but no roles for black women other than nurses and prostitutes that was literally it and I just thought hmm I fancy something where I might get a chance to do a bit more. So I started answering ads in Melody Maker, which is where all the ads for bands were. So I answered ads, met a few people and just thought, nah. (laughs) And then I saw this ad for, it said, started calling all rude girls. And I went, nah, not answering that. I'd given up by then. Maybe a bit before that, I remember the Modettes were looking for a singer. And I remember that little Helen, like Helen of Troy, was going to go after it. And I just thought, oh, well, they're not going to give me the job. She'll get the job. So I didn't bother to try for that. So when I saw Corner, I saw Corner Rude Girls, I thought, no, it's just going to be more nonsense. But bizarrely, 
I was on a Saturday, I used to work in this shop on the King's Road that used to sell like kind of, you know, 60s two-tone clothes because I was, that's how I used to dress. So I worked in there and then afterwards I saw that there was a band, the Stay Press were playing at the Greyhound in Fulham. So that wasn't a million miles away. And I thought, oh, I'll just pop along because I used to go to loads of gigs and Shane McGowan was there and I knew Shane from around and so we were chatting and Shane also knew Nikki, who was the bass player in Body Snatchers. So she asked to be introduced. So he introduced us and she said to me, can you sing? And I just went, yeah. Do you want to be in a band? Yeah. And that was it, really. Wow. I went along for an audition. Yeah, it wasn't, there weren't second rounds. Yeah, I just went along for an audition and meet everyone. And that was like, yeah, okay got the band let's go that's really interesting because shane mcgowan's come up on the podcast before because he was the guy that introduced the jam to chris parry at polydor and chris parry ended up signing the jam to polydor so he obviously had his finger on the pulse good taste yeah shane was everywhere i mean he was one of those people that would turn up at all kinds of gigs you know what i mean i mean there was (laughs) the only guy i can think of like that was before was there's this guy called jesus i don't know if you've heard of him but he was like a famous music fan that used to go to loads and loads of gigs i'm sure he didn't pay he just used to turn up and people would let him in but he had this like short i don't know it's this weird haircut but anyway it kind of it was long at the back and short at the front and he would dance half naked and given a chance completely naked in the, in the audience at almost any gig that he turned up to he sounds like a legend or a pest one of the two up. yeah 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 look him up look him up because i think he died not too long back but yeah, he was like a festival legend and whatever. But I, I first saw him at the New York Dolls at the Rainbow, well, at Rainbow Rooms when they played in above Bieber. So that was 1973 is when I first saw him. And like, there we are. It's the New York Dolls and he's half naked in the audience <laughs> being a hippie. It was so funny. It was, <laughs> culture clash didn't even begin to describe. <laughs> yeah. So Shane was, so there was Jesus and Shane was the kind of, I suppose, I, I'm not saying that he was, he obviously wasn't anything to do with Jesus and he wasn't like, but he was omnipresent in the way that Jesus had been. Right. So, the thing yeah. about body snatchers, because the, the life of Body Snatchers is relatively short. We're talking just over a year. 13 months, yeah. Yeah, but the impact that it had, it's really important still to people, that band, isn't it? Yeah, but, I mean, that's because, one, we were kind of there right at the beginning of Two Tone. We were on the posters and whatever. But Dance Craze, it was the film Dance Craze, because that wasn't released till after we had broken up. That was what took that whole scene to America. So it kind of inflated the importance of this band because we had, you know, almost as much screen time as the specials, you know what I mean? And compared to, say, the specials, the Selector Madness, they'd all put out albums and we just had two singles. I mean, but we were dealt with in the same way. We had almost as much screen time. We were on the poster that came with the album. So that's why really. That whole movement had such a big culture impact in terms of the the style of music, the ska reggae influenced music that mixed in with punk rock at the time as well. Yeah. So it's a really exciting time to be, to be young. Well, yeah. I mean, we, it was before, you know, now we're kind of all observed and and judged constantly. And I think it was before that really kicked in, that kind of judging and observation of early young people were left a bit more to themselves. I mean, can you imagine, like, I'm going to see the New York Dolls in Rainbow Room on top of Bieber, and I was 
14 and I'm going in and it's fine. And nobody's asking me how old I am. I just go in. I mean, you couldn't do that today. I mean, it's probably against about 15 different laws, but you, you could do that at the time. I could go anywhere. There was no minimum age for gigs. So we could go to all kinds of things. And then plus on the days when you didn't want to be you know, older than you were, you could go to youth clubs. So there were youth clubs to go to. And now kids don't have either of those things. It was a good time for the freedom that it afforded us. And also no mobile phones, you know, so nobody could track you. Once you were out of the house, you were gone. Have your mum ringing you saying, what time are you going to be back? As a parent of young kids, that sounds terrifying, though. (laughs) Well, I mean, yes, it is and it isn't. But you, what you did is you had to give them the tools to be able to cope with that. And and the thing, the truth is, children are a product of what you give them. So as well as what they have themselves. But, you know, if you want children to know how to behave, say now we have this thing with People get to 18, up to 18, they're not allowed to drink. When they're 18, they absolutely go mental and Mm. and drink loads. Either that or they're drunk in the park at night before that. Now, when I was 14, I could go for a pub crawl up Borough High Street and nobody is going to bat an eyelid until I start to look drunk. And once I start to look drunk, they're not going to serve me anymore. You know, if I get leery, I'm out the door. You know, this is not me advocating for alcohol or the consumption of alcohol. This is me just saying children and young people need to be included in to adult society if you want to teach them how to behave in adult society. Otherwise, all that happens is on the day when they can be illegally adults, they just go and behave however they want. They don't get any guidance and you can't chuck them out because they're legally allowed to be there. So that whole thing of like going to pubs and seeing how, you know, older people just sit and sit quietly and drink. And so that's what you did. Otherwise, you get kicked out. That's how you learn to consume alcohol and to have it be part of your going out society. As it happens, it's not something that I particularly liked and I stopped it. But kids can't do that. Sitting around with older people learning that drinking is not something you have to do to excess in order for it to be an addition to your leisure time. So that's, you know, I'm soapboxing about it, but I just think that's the massive difference. And if children are included in, like they are in, you know, sort of Southern European society, where going out at night, there aren't just people between the ages of 18 and 30. People of all ages are out at night. And like, you know, and then if an old lady tells you off for misbehaving, you have to do what she says, because we're, the people are responsible for other people. And you would get this passion uh, from you and this this is wonderful i don't know if you've heard this billy bragg said about you with red wedge rhoda has an ability to see through a lot of bullshit around politics and rock and roll chairing the red wedge steering committees is a credit to her commitment to trying to make music that says something and does something and i feel that this being able to see through a lot of bullshit applies to life just generally right but red wedge how did you become involved in that how did that kick off for you i chaired the steering committee at some point i don't remember actually if i'm honest i don't remember Somebody must have invited me along to a meeting because I know I wasn't there at the beginning because I lived in Leicester. I lived in the Midlands at the time. But somebody must have invited me to a meeting. And I don't remember who that was. But I went along because obviously, you know, I had lots of mates involved in it. So I went along and um, I thought, oh, this is good. I like this. I didn't know Billy Bragg at the time. So I I'd met Billy through that. I knew Dr. Robert. I think actually, did I know him that well? I don't know. I honestly don't remember. I don't remember. But um, basically, 
I went along and um, I thought it was a really good idea. I quite liked access to politicians and tell them what, yeah, I know what you said, but this is how it really is. It was really nice to be able to do that. But truth to tell, you know you have that right anyway. And I think that's the other thing people don't realise. This is like, you know, politicians work for us. It's not the other way around. We don't work for them. They work for us. And I don't know if the rule still applies, but there was a rule that meant that you could turn up at Parliament. I mean, obviously now you have to go through a massive checkpoint, so it may have been set aside. But you used to be able to just walk up to Parliament and walk in, walk into the Great Hall, and you can demand to see your MP. And if they're on the premises, they have to see you. So that's a rule. I doubt whether anybody actually exercises that right, but you do have that right because they work for you. They represent you. It's not the other way around. We don't work for them. We aren't doing them a favour. They're doing they're doing us the favour by representing us. So they are accountable to us. It really saddens me when I hear people say something like, yeah, oh, they're all, you know, they're all on the take. They're all rubbish. They absolutely are not. And I'm not going to say, oh, it's just a small minority because I have no, I have nothing to, um, to show that that's true. But in my experience... Most MPs go into the job with clear-eyed optimism. They want to go and make things better. Even if that is wrong, like they're a Tory, they still think that their Tory ideas will make the world a better place. And that's why they do the job. I mean, someone like, who's that guy who's recently murdered, David Amos? Now, someone like him, I mean, I you know, didn't agree with the geezer's politics, but you can't say that that was a man on the take. You know, there was nothing to suggest that he was anything other than held in the highest of esteem by his constituents. And I've met many MPs who are clearly cut from that cloth, if not that colour of cloth, but that cloth. You know, I really don't think most of them are on the take and most of them don't care. I think some of them are out of touch. If you think your MP's out of touch, have a word. They have local surgeries. Go and speak to them. Just go and say, you're not representing me. This is what I need you to do. Until people actually do that, I think we're always going to have this thing, oh, well, you know. Let me ask you about Red Wedge. It was this mix of music in these day events. So you mentioned Billy yeah. Bragg. Obviously, Paul Weller, a really key yeah. part of that. Anna Joy David, people like yeah. um, Lorna G. Junior, who's been on the podcast as well. Dr. Yeah. Robert, you mentioned, joined the second part of that first tour. And the purpose of Red Wedge was to get young people interested in politics. It wasn't necessarily a Labour thing, was it? But it was about getting people interested in politics and, and registering to vote, ultimately. Yeah, to engage. In terms of the music side of things, I mean, I can't get my head around this, like these these artists. I mean, Paul at the time was a number one charting artist. So there must have been a big risk for you lot to get involved in this, I would have thought. Well, it was a risk for Paul. I don't think it was a risk for the rest of us at all, really. It was a risk for him, but... He believed in it. He really believed in it. It was a risk for him. Probably his record company were going mental trying to stop him doing it. I don't know how much John was actually behind it as dad, but if Paul wanted it, then John would support him. So that's kind of how it worked. But that was what he wanted. Essentially, if it hadn't been for Style Council, there wouldn't have been any tours because they, I think they brought the rig. Yeah, I think it was all Paul's kit gear. And it was, I think he yeah. financed that first tour as well. Didn't yeah, he? basically, yeah. Yeah, so it wouldn't have happened without him. So, yeah, I think we're all eternally grateful to his commitment. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's still there. He did that, like, concert for Corbyn. I think Corbyn kind of, he liked Corbyn, I think, um, because we did 
a thing called Concert for Corbin down in Brighton, and that must have been about five or six years ago. I don't know if it was to raise money or just as a consciousness-raising notion, but anyway, yeah, we did that. I compared it. He played it that. He kind of headlined that, and I compared it. The thing is, I suppose you start off with your optimism and then you become a parent and then you realise actually, you know, to be fair, it's not like his kids are going without, but I think he remembers what it was like. He very much remembers what that was like. And I think that weighs on his conscience, which is something I really respect him for, you know. One thing that really shocked me from talking to Junior was he talks about racism from the crowd at one mm. point when they were doing the live gigs, which just was just a real surprise because you would have thought everybody who follows Paul, follows the Style Council, would understand his political leanings, would understand where he's coming from in terms of his viewpoint in the world, whether it be a European or whatever. Yeah, that really surprised me. Did you experience that as well? I didn't, but then I was just kind of a special guest, you know, I did... I'll do the special guest. And I'd already had my time of like Skinner's Seek Island. But the thing is, what you have to remember is that this was the days of the Style Council. And a lot of those white boys just wanted the jam back. And they didn't want this other music with these other people and women and black women. They didn't want that. The whole mod scene, you can't really say that it mixed it up. You know what I mean? It was very white and it was very suburban. And it still is, really, still is exactly like that. Very white, very suburban. And I don't think people really wanted that disturbed. They had their view of how the 60s had been and they wanted to just replay it in their kind of little world. And and this is a classic. I went, was going to a club. This is like before I was in band, but I was like, you know, into the scene, whatever. And I was going to me, oh, this is brilliant. It's just like 1966. And I was like, I said, you are having a laugh. I said, it was 1966, mate. I wouldn't be queuing in this to get into this club. I'd be in one down the road. And you know that very well because they wouldn't have let me in here. And this is the thing. People have this kind of rosy-coloured idea of, oh, yeah, the 60s was this. Well, it may have been if you were kind of P.P. Arnold or something, you know, because she was moving in different circles. But, like, her equivalent, who was just an ordinary person, wasn't going to get that kind of treatment. And the jam fans was, were essentially following on from that. I mean, you know, I know it was kind of coexisted with punk, but they weren't punks. They were from a whole different ethos. And it was very much about being suburban. And I don't mean that as a as a slight. It's just a you know an observation of what it's like to live outside the centre of a city, which is something I kind of started to grasp when I lived in the Midlands for a bit. I sort of got I I, I started to understand things I've never grasped before because obviously I've been a you know just central London all my life. The vibe was very different. It's very multicultural, and that was all good. But like you know, as I've travelled around the country, you go out. You haven't got to go far and it's all like just white people, very few black people. And especially back then, there were very few places where you'd go and you'd see the, the kind of cultural mix, which you expect from the city centre. So you could go to central Birmingham, go to central Manchester, Leicester a bit, but not, you know, Nottingham a bit. And I'm talking back in the day, so in the time when the jam would have been told. No, there weren't mixed as they are now. And I think we forget that very quickly. So I'm not at all surprised that people who essentially resented the fact that the jam were that it wasn't the jam were quite you know, antagonistic 
to people they felt were interfering with the return to their dream. I watched the Red Wedge documentary the other day. One thing struck me was the kind of camaraderie between all of you on that tour, that first tour in 86. Does it look like you're all like having a great laugh like yeah. really good mates, really good bonds being formed and people like Dr. Robert and yourself and Paul were a real key part of that. Would that be the case or was it just for the video? <laughs> no, no, it was it was actually true because the thing is, you know, we all did, I think there was a lot of passion. There was a lot of passion and I would still say that my political touchstones are Paul Weller, Dr. Robert and and also in some cases the spouses of these people and I'm still like really good friends with you know the guys from Madness the ones who were on the tour and I am still in touch and I'm trying to think if there are people there are a couple of people I'm not in touch with but by and large I'm in touch with an awful lot of those people not every day because not all of them live in the same country for goodness sake but you know I do see them and we are still in touch and we do hang out and it's really nice and and one of the things that we do do, and I don't know who knows what's been happening here, but um, when Billy and Juliet, his wife, who used to manage the selector, which is how I knew her, they start to run the left field at Glastonbury. And left field had existed before, but it was all a bit, you know, it was all a bit make doing men. And they took it over and did really did a good job. And so that was a real, really nice place to hang out and start those political debates again it was a bit like i mean i was there thank god i, I woke up there the morning of the when the brexit vote had been counted i went to sleep my son uh, was saying uh, about midnight he was saying yeah yeah it looks like we, it looks like we're all right mum so i was like, okay cool and then woke up the next morning and it was all over and you know we were all we were all just like looking at each other going how did yeah. this get away from us this is awful but those were the people I was with, and thank goodness, because at least then we could kind of support each other and find a way forward and start thinking, okay, so what do we do with this now, you know? But yes, we did forge real relationships. I mean, you know, Sarah J. Morris, who was in the Communards, I still... I'm still in contact with and it was good. Mick Talbot's been on the podcast a little while back, obviously from the Star yeah. Council. He mentioned this hilarious story of being left at a service station by Kenny oh Wheeler, bless God. him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Wasn't it you that found him? Yeah, 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 it was me that found him. And I mean, what was really funny is when I think like the week after when I went down to Solid Bond, there was like a picture of Mick with Have You Seen This Man posted all over the <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I, I, they dropped me off because I wasn't on the bus because I'd just gone up to, to join the tour. I wasn't, you know, officially on the tour. I'd gone up to see some gigs. So I came back in the crew bus and they dropped me off at Leicester Forest Sea because I lived just over the back. I went in and I called home and said, you yeah, know, come pick me up. And I was like, Nick, what are you doing here? And he went, they went without me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine, like, Kenny Wheeler's one job is to make sure all the Style Council members... He was mortified. <laughs> I bet he was. I bet he was. Yeah, so I saw him and I was like, oh, my God. I said, so what you can do? And I was like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a bus outside. So obviously my seat on the bus, I kind of ran outside and, and sort of flagged them down so, so, so they didn't leave. So he got the bus that I'd been on and went, went back right. to London with them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, how funny. Mick just has that look, that kind of like, 
<laughs> like horn for so funny. Like a lost puppy. <laughs> Something approaching that. <laughs> now, fairly soon after this, am I right in thinking you left the music industry completely uh, fairly soon after Red Wedge? Because there were like only little yeah. occasions where you'd pop up. And Dr. Robert is one I want to talk to you about, actually, because there was a brilliant, I was playing this album the other day, I mentioned it to um, Dr. Robert on Twitter, it was the Realms of Gold album, which is just oh, yeah. a magnificent album. This would have been about yeah. 95, 96. And The Coming of Grace is the song that I wanted to mention because Paul was on it Paul Weller's on it it's you no, it was before 95 it was it was early 90s oh, it was earlier than that was it right. yeah it was early 90s it was more like late 80s maybe even you know but yeah, anyway, sorry. Mick Talbot's there on Hammond Organ. Um, so that's, yeah. what, what can you remember about that and recording with Paul and recording with Dr. Robert on that song? Well, I'm credited as the roadie on the album. <laughs> I didn't know it's that. Yeah, road of the roadie. Well, because I drove the van. It's like, well, because Paul and Robert, I mean, I don't know if they, this has changed since, but Paul and Robert could only drive automatic vehicles. Neither of them could drive manual vehicles. I mean, you know, and they needed a van to take the kit and take the drummer and the bass player from London to the studio. And I knew the guy who owned the studio, Johnny Rivers, you know, so it was kind of nice. I'll go to the studio, hang out a bit. And, and then from there, because it was in Leamington Spa, I could drive back to Leicester and then go and pick up stuff the next day or something like that. It was what, it was something like that anyway. That's what I was doing. Oh, because Marco was there. I seem to remember Marco was in the van. At Marco Nelson, right. Okay. Maybe I'm dreaming. I'm not sure. I may have made that up. But anyway, I drove up there and I was like, just listening to the recording, whatever, enjoying it. And Robert said, I'll come and sing on it. And I was like, what? I was, I, I remember just being mortified at the thought of, Standing around the microphone, me, Robert, and Paul round the microphone singing back and vocals. And to be honest, I'm like, because I'm not, you know, nobody's going to ever mistake me for a backing singer. I'm just not. I don't a have that kind of voice. But also, just I was so nervous, I could barely. I think I could barely sing. I could barely sing. So I was like, ooh, ooh you know. It was like, <laughs> Anyway, so they managed to get away with it. <laughs> Cut out all the high frequencies. I don't know. But yeah, yeah, it was really nice. Cause, but it's a great, you know, it's great tunes. Great tunes on that album. And Robert is a great tunesman. Well, the latest Blow Monkeys album is a terrific piece of work as well. He's yeah. Yeah, I mean, absolutely brilliant. I mean, you don't get worse at that sort of thing. <laughs> you don't get worse at it. You do get better. So like, if you start off with, you know, bar starts off pretty high, you're not actually going to get worse. It's fine. We should talk about your return then to the music business. And there was the album, this lost album of Body Snatchers tunes, um, which you recorded. Uh, Rhoda Dakar sings the Body Snatchers, which I'd love to talk about, because then it's quickly followed up by an album recorded or an EP rather recorded at yeah. Black Barn Paul Weller's studio so talk to me about that that comeback and that return to the music industry was it something well, that had been niggling at you for a while or? well it was I mean the thing is the Body Snatchers album was my third sad I released an acoustic album five years before the Body Snatchers album I released this album called Back to the Garage that was on the 35th anniversary of Three Tone and the idea was to produce uh, music that was influenced by the music that inspired Two Tone. So it was kind of garage punk and like kind of rock, which is basically what made Two Tone what it was. It wasn't just the reggae, it was the punk as well that fused together and made it. So, um, so yeah, I oh, yeah, that was funny actually. Because I remember asking for a review in The Guardian and they said, Oh, could you just write it yourself? I <laughs> said, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a piece for The Guardian about why I went back to the garage. And I just thought, it's for real. And it was, they printed it. I mean, you know, printed it and they paid me 
for, for writing my own review. I should ask to do another one, actually. I'll, I'll give it five stars, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll give yeah, I'll give myself five stars, yeah. That was funny. It was the funny. But yeah, so those I'd done those two albums and then that was when I had a bit of a hiatus. I'd had enough. But somebody encouraged me to come back or something. And I remember I'd just dropped my son off at a squash club, as I was always doing at that time. And then I was talking to someone message because there was this new thing called crowdfunding. And that's how I managed to do that was crowdfunding because previous to that, you know, it was like unless a label was going to release something, you couldn't release stuff. Well, you self-released it, but you paid for it yourself. Well, that's what I meant about that impact and that love of the band still, so that, that short period of time and the love for you. It's like that people still wanted to hear that music and wanted you to record yeah. those lost songs, right? It was wicked. No, I mean, honestly, that crowdfunding and back when it was all possible, crowdfunding was brilliant because you could just, you know, it... it I mean, pledge music wasn't an ideal vehicle because you did end up with like massive costs before they would give you the money. Yeah, and it was kind of crippling debt. But you did get the money back eventually, but by then, you know, lost everything. It was shocking that people were so ready to help you record. It was shocking. I mean, obviously it was brilliant, but it was quite, I was quite shocked by the speed with which people were willing to to like chip in you know mm. that was amazing that was an amazing feeling because then all these people were then invested in this album you had a ready-made audience it was amazing it was a really strange experience and then yeah i did another couple of eps the low tech for volumes one and two i can't even remember why we recorded that but i know i just said oh it may may have been from one of the jam exhibitions so i kept so i just asked for a bit of studio time fair enough all i had to do was pay the engineer and yeah, we called it. I mean, and it's beautiful sound. Studio's beautiful sound. I had my first visit just before Christmas, and the, one lovely. of what I hope will be many. But yeah, really special place, right? Yeah, yeah. The sound is brilliant, and and like you know, my the son that who brought my lunch. Yeah, because he played drums on a track on the first EP. So he's actually played, he recorded in there as well. I remember at the time, like you saying how proud you were of that EP and how you felt it was like your your strongest work at that moment in time. Oh, it was. It was beautiful. I mean, because the sound was lovely. The production was really good. Lenny did the production was really good. Um, we rehearsed the songs, so we went in and played them, recorded live. You know, there was no, you know, it wasn't like loads of overdubs or anything. We all recorded together, recorded live. It did sound really good. And obviously the studio, you know, we just kind of pass it back to what, what the bare bones of what was needed. But no, it was it was weird taking my son in there, taking my son there. And then I think Kenny Wheeler turned up and his son is now the, the tour manager. Yeah, Bill, yeah. Yeah, so he's the tour manager. So it was like, oh, all right, Kenny, all right. You know, because I, I, I thought it was a studio. I didn't realise that, you know, it was kind of a place where people just came along and hung out and there was offices and stuff like that and a house next door. Anyway, yeah, so I hadn't seen Kenny for years. It's like, oh, you know, I'm recording. Oh, and he was like, oh, yeah, my son's, look, this is my son. It's like, oh, yeah, my son's, you know, the way it was kind of, <laughs> it was funny. It was funny. And, you know, and lovely in a way. It's kind of the family thing kind of, I suppose, and I was just having this conversation. A picture came up in my memories on Facebook, which was me with Louis Ray from Western, Young People's Band, West London, vocal trio, really good, and they've kind of, really embracing kind of Afrobeats a lot now, which is really nice. But yeah, anyway, Louis Ray, I was on tour with Selector and we were in 
there was an upstairs and a downstairs this venue and, and Westman were playing downstairs and I just saw their manager and said, well, I could just say hello because I haven't seen him for years. And literally, I mean, I saw him as like this big grey man and I cried, obviously, because that's me. And the last time I'd seen him was at Solid Bond because his mum, Tanya, used to work there and he was at Solid Bond and she would have a, like a, a sign on the door when she was feeding him. You know, so he was like a babe in arms and she was at work with him at Solid Bond. So it was like, oh, because <laughs> I've known his dad since he was nine. His dad was a, his dad is an actor, Gary Beadle. I was in youth theatre with his older brother, Ricky, and Gary was too young to be in our youth theatre. So he was only in Ricky's little kids' youth theatre. So I've known since he was like nine years old. Tanya's dad used to do the merch for Star Council and, and, <laughs> A funny story. Just we went to see Star Council when I lived in Leicester. Went to see Star Council in Nottingham. We parked at the back of the venue. It was, it was before they've had a rebuild now, but you could just park. So we parked in, you know, and the gates were open. And there was no, there was a sign on the inside of the gates that said, "If your your car will be clamped if you park here," but you couldn't see it because obviously gates were open. So we parked. Never thought anything of it. And then came out, and there was like a clamp on. <laughs> on the wheel my ex at the time he was like going mad and then brian so this is louis ray's granddad just come out he does the merch come out with baseball bat and he's like yeah come on then (laughs) (laughs) there was going to be a big bundle at the back of rock city and uh i remember kenny coming out and having a look saying what's going on then Uh, and i I don't know who paid the, the ticket but somebody paid it and i know it wasn't me uh, it might have been Harvey Goldsmith, for all I know. But somebody <laughs> paid the ticket and the clamp was removed and no blood was spilled. That's all I remember. I love hearing about all these connections as well. And have you seen Paul live? Is, is Paul, a, as a solo artist, is Paul a yeah. musician you'll go and see and, and meet and stuff? Oh, yeah, definitely. He really good. I mean, I know that's kind of given, but I do think he's really good and he has a love for music that is infectious. And all kinds of music, like, you know, is interested in, in stuff. And hearing that my son had been recording at Black Barn, I remember he was saying, oh, so your son's a drummer. Tell me about it. You know what I mean? He's, he's just kind of, he's interested in music and who's doing what and what's happening and whatever. And, and that's, I think, you know, I think it's almost a passion for music rather than, I mean, obviously the politics as well. But I know Robert and Paul, were both particularly into all kinds of music. And, and Robert, I think, was into, like, you know, quite out there stuff. And I know that's kind of where we connected with that, you know, sort of North African music, the rye, rye music. But, no, I think passion. Once you lose the passion, then you don't carry on. But he has real passion for what he does. And he goes to work, doesn't he? Like, he turns up to the studio and goes to work. That's like a proper, he has like a proper work ethic about music, which is something that I remember seeing that, admiring it and thinking, yeah, that's how it's done. And that's the kind of thing that I've taught. My son is a DJ producer. So first lockdown, I think he got a little grant from Help Musicians and he bought a bit of kit so he could record at home. And he was there like six hours a day working because music is work and that's what he's always heard it's not about being a dilettante you've got to work at it because it doesn't come from just messing about just sort of recently i was like like this week i was in the studio again doing like the third 
version of a vocal on a song because it just wasn't right and it just you just can't leave it. You owe it to yourself to do a proper job and you owe it to the public to do the best work you can. Yeah, that's definitely part of PW's work ethic, which is great. And also, I mean, it didn't just come from, you know, it came from John as well, didn't it? But even that bit where the style council comes to an end and there's that gap between Paul and, you know, becoming a solo artist, when everything I've read is it's John saying to Paul, we need to get back out on the road, son. You need to get back, yeah. back kicking. We need to earn some dough. You know, that's, that's, mm. that's your job. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was definitely true. I mean, because he got that, I'm trying to think, it was Pony Canyon, wasn't it? it was the first that's right, yeah. Album. Yeah. I can remember... He, he recorded it and he had a listening party and I'm listening to this and it was like, I was like, oh my God, this is, this is brilliant. You think, I said, no, really? Because it's like you listen to it and you think, yeah, I mean, the, the songs are so well crafted. And I said, yeah, but that's that whole thing that you just really understand the way a song, you know, the way you build, the way you knock it down slightly and then build it. I mean, you know, he really understood the dynamics of songwriting. And I, I think I even said that, you know what I mean? I think I even said, you know, it's like the dynamics of songwriting, it's something you've grasped so well that like, I think these songs are just brilliant. I mean, you know, once again, it was one of those things to start with. It was very difficult. And so that's why I remember Rock City again, playing at Rock City again, because he played in Nottingham just, just as Paul Weller. And there was like hardly anyone there. And you're just thinking, hey, what, you know, what's, what's going on? I would turn up. A lot of our mates would always turn up, kind of moral support. And you just think, that's so weird to think that now. Like people were kind of, oh, no, yeah, I'm not sure. Must have been interesting then to see the kind of rise through Wildwood and Stanley Road and him being back on top and selling yeah. you know, millions of records again. It's kind of how it should have been. You know what I mean? It's how it should have been because he's an excellent songwriter. I mean, never mind performance or whatever, but he's an excellent songwriter. And so that's what he deserved. I don't think there's any real doubt. I mean, you know, you look at the way music business is structured. He's an excellent songwriter with a whole heap of stuff that he'd done before and you know it's the music business not being funny but like you know a white man is always going to do it he's always going to be all right if he's taken to the heart of the business he made a lot of money for the business so the business are going to respect that and get that behind him but i know it wasn't easy because they were looking around for something new at that point and they weren't sure that he was going to be able to, to do it because i mean you know this is like i'm trying to think how old we were we about 30, we were in our 30s, weren't we? And yeah. suddenly it's like, oh, well, you know, that's not pop music now. Pop music is for 20 year olds. So now you're in your 30s, don't know if we can. So there was this kind of period of sort of five to 10 years where, and I don't know what it is, it might have been the time when a lot of people were having kids. So the people who normally would have been out supporting didn't come out because they were at home with children. It's weird to see that we've all kind of come through it now and now we're getting back the audiences we had before because they now have disposable income. In fact, they have the disposable income that young people don't have in a way. And for Paul, we're talking about 45 years since that, since the jam first were on the scene, you know, that longevity, the fact that he's still bashing out number one albums, left, right and centre, yeah. and about to be back out on the road again, which is really exciting for us to see him live again. But likewise yourself. So we're about to kick off your next tour. That must be really exciting. <laughs> 
<laughs> a little more modest fair enough yes yeah. but that must be exciting to get back doing live performance after what we've all been through over the past couple of years right well yeah it is i mean there's, there's a bit of trepidation though you know because the only people i know who managed to do a whole tour without it being cut short was madness they were like locked down you know so they were the only people who've managed it so far everyone else's pause ended up like three days short didn't it yeah 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 I mean, so everybody had to call off gigs. I don't know. I mean, there's a bit of trepidation. Will we get through all of it? I don't know. I'm excited about talk of new material from you then. So over the past what year and a bit, we've had a couple of cracking singles, these covers. Morrissey, when was that last... That Easter that was time, was it something April. like that? Morrissey cover Every Day is Like Sunday, which is just fabulous. Yeah. And then this year, kicking off the year with your version, we go full circle, actually, back to Bowie, don't we? Yeah. Um, we started off at the beginning. But The Man Who Sold the World, which is just a lovely, lovely version of that. Is there more of that to come in terms of those covers, or is it original material from here on in? Well, the whole idea was kind of conceived in lockdown. And in lockdown, you didn't really have time to... You couldn't write together because of delay on Zoom and things like that. So... I thought, let's just do some, let's do some covers. And every day is like Sunday had been my earworm. And it, to be fair, it was the Pretenders version that was my earworm. I'll be honest, it wasn't Morrissey's version. You know, back in the beginning of lockdown, so you're like, I don't know, a month in, six weeks in, and you're just thinking, I don't know what day it is. You were allowed up for an hour a day or something. It's hard to believe now, but at that time, I just remember thinking, I don't know what day it is. Every day is the same because there was nothing to tell you it was any different. There was no traffic. There was nothing changed. Every day was hardly anybody outside and all of that. So that was going around in my head. Then there was a gap in lockdown and we could get in the studio. So we recorded that and another tune. So I just thought, oh, let's put a single out, you know, with like, that was the, sad side and then we had a, another song that we recorded as the happy side so we do like happy sad single and then got an offer to do a couple of singles for Sunday Best so I just thought well let's keep that I'd keep this other keep this other tunes which was an original tune so that's recorded just sitting there and I don't know how can't we thought, well let's just try something else and I can't even remember what we were going to have anyway we, there's some corkers cover versions that's basically what the project was because it just meant that we knew what the songs were and we didn't have to write them or rehearse them because you couldn't rehearse. So there's some, let's just like take a journey through my record collection and it's that. Because lots of people have done covers of reggae songs, you know, and I just thought that's been done and it's been done in in the style that's not going to be a million miles away from what I do. So what's the point of doing those again? I might as well do songs that people don't do reggae covers. But I think when we discovered the reggae version of Man Who Sold the World, and the backing track was fine, but the vocal was pony. So just thought, let's just do a, like a proper version, a version where, you know, I'm singing because I, I believe in it. That's what we did. And, and I can't remember, it kind of snowballed. But anyway, so tomorrow my new single will be released, which is um, Walking After Midnight. That's oh, a, wow. And we did that in a Scar style because it kind of worked with the original country version. Scar kind of worked. I mean, they're not the same anyway. So we did a Scar version of that. Um, right. So cool. Right. Looking forward to that. Wow. Yeah. So a bit of a spot of Patsy Cline. I don't know if you'll notice on the um, on the cover of Man Who Sold the World, there's other covers of songs there that Peter's drawn. So they're kind of clues as to the other. Uh, oh, we'll look into that. The imagery is great on these, I have to say. Brilliant. He's, he's a real talent, isn't he? What a great guy. He's just brilliant. I'm so chuffed. I can't tell you. It was inspired by 
the very sad murder of Sarah Sarah Everard. And so I just thought that, yeah, well, that's that's what made me think of that because, you know, the whole thing, oh, she was only walking home. And so I was just thinking, yeah, walking after midnight because I do that a lot. I don't even think twice about it, you know, walk in the dark. I suppose there must be a a thing in my head which, you know, is kind of being urban, there's like a little sixth sense about streets you don't walk down. I don't know that that's any different for a man, to be honest. I mean, probably. I don't I don't know. I'm not a man. I don't know how men think. But I quite happily walk through London in the dark. You know, I wouldn't don't even think twice about it. And so that's what drew me to that, you know, kind of made that song the one that we should choose. And uh, on the B side of that, we've got... Um, there's a there's like a, a wicked sort of for me it's toasting. Okay. So Campbell has done like a toast on back with the idea in mind of we should all be safe to walk home on the streets. Wicked job he's done. It's really, really good. But yeah, so that'll be coming out tomorrow. Okay. Well, okay, really well. We'll put all the links for this in the show notes um, for the podcast as well. And likewise, I'll put the link in for your Totally Wired radio show as well. Uh, Eddie Pillar was on the podcast a little while back and talking about that brilliant radio station. So this is monthly Mondays, 8 till 10 p.m. Pork Pie and Mashup, the radio show is called, right? I mean, there's literally no end to your talents from music to DJing to activist to campaigner, teaching vocals, teaching performance. Um, Rhoda, this has been so lovely chatting with you. I've loved every second of this. I have two final questions for you. Yeah, go on. You'll be pleased to know so you can go and have your lunch. First question, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Style oh, <laughs> The Jam, the Style Council or Solo. What are you going to go with? Um, oh, God, I don't know. What would I go with? I'd probably go with It's a Very Deep Sea. I love it. Oh, that's a great tune. I'd go with that, I think. I think it was just the sound of that whole album I thought was amazing. It was really, really good. And they had, like, I remember having the, had the Swingle Singers or something, it was doing back and forth or something. Yeah. Yeah, that was the joke, Wella Fitzgerald. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not mine. <laughs> Is it? I think that was, that was his joke, but yeah. But yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so a very deep sea. I just love it. It reminds me of so many things and yeah. So the purpose of this podcast is not least to talk to amazing people like yourself who have had incredible careers, connections with Paul Weller over the years and great stories to tell. But it's also for me to get the interview with Paul Weller that I never managed during my radio career. If it <laughs> happens, <laughs> what should I ask him, Rona? Oh, blimey, I don't know. Um, did you ask him? He loves music. He loves music. I mean, like, he's passionate about music. So if you can, I would say, ask him, don't ask him, oh, what are your influences? Say, like, I don't know, pick a song and say, this to me sounds like so-and-so. Did you listen to that or is there an influence of that? So I would say I would say that, just kind of follow the musical nose, see where things have come from. That stuff he did with the Ethiopian, uh, the... Um, Ethiopia. Oh, M- Mother Ethiopia. Yeah, Mother Ethiopia. That was, was so good. He's much more experimental. I mean, it doesn't always come to light, but he, you know, I know they kind of do lots of experimental things and not everything works out, but, you know, it's the fact that he tries all kinds of things. In fact, you could even say, how the bloody hell did that come about? Mother Ethiopia. What was that all about? Where did that come from? Whose idea was that one? I love that. That was excellent. Um, Have you ever talked about collaborating together and working together? Oh, God, no. <laughs> no. No, no, no. No, because the, the last time I had to sing next to him, I was terrified. So, no, I don't, I don't fancy that at all. 
<laughs> made me think just th- this one time it was like somebody's birthday we're in the basement at acid jazz and like he's playing piano singing i'm your puppet it's possible i was a little bit the worst for alcohol which happened very rarely but we had been celebrating someone's birthday and i was kind of singing along but like no i'm quite happy to go and watch other people do stuff i don't need to jump on I know some people love all that, don't they? They love jumping on and joining with people, but I'm not I'm not really that person. You know, I'm quite happy for them to do their own songs perfectly well without any interference from me. If I was stood at the side of the stage and somebody pushed me on, because obviously I, that has happened, that's fine. But, yeah, I'm, what am I going to bring to a collaboration? My 50 years of great songwriting? I mean, no. You carry on, lad. You seem to have got the hang of this. <laughs> Uh, Rhoda, thank you so much. Good luck with the new music. Good luck with the gigs. And let's hope it all goes according to plan. And lovely to have you on. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Cheers, Dan. All the best. Yeah? Take care, won't you? Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. What an absolute blast to chat to Rhoda Dakar on this podcast. Brilliant, brilliant guest. Thank you so much once again for joining me, Rhoda. And don't forget all the details on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can find out info about the tour, the latest single, previous singles, the albums. Just head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode of Desperately Seeking Paul, then please do share on your social media channels and make sure you follow wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, etc. Be really great if you could give it a five star review as well, as it does help us to find new listeners to the podcast. Plus, not long to go now until our very first live show, live in London, the Cockpit Theatre. My very special guest, DJ and broadcaster Gary Crowley, and one of Paul Weller's best mates, Steve Tufty Carver. Join me. We're going to be live in London. Tickets on sale right now. PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. Sunday, March the 13th. I'd love to see you there. Tickets available on my website, PaulWellerFanPodcast.com. So that's all very exciting. Plus, on the next podcast next week, we have another very special guest. We head to Hollywood. Movie and TV actor Max Beasley on the podcast. Yes, the man who was there at the start of the Paul Weller solo career as part of that brilliant Paul Weller movement band. You're going to love this one, honestly. Max Beasley on the next podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get it first. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.